0: Well, good morning. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, I know it's um, still November, but uh, we are excited this morning to begin our first Sunday of Advent. And as any of you that have been around for any length of time know, you know that um, Advent is a time that we are preparing to celebrate the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is also a time that we prepare ourselves to receive Him for His second coming. One of the things that um, we have learned is that a lot of times for us as Christians, um, Christmas can become more about our families, more about shopping, more about gift-giving. Many times in our life, Christmas can become um, about... um, America, I guess you could say. We've Americanized Christmas. And so our hope is that as we celebrate this season of Advent, and by the way, the word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And so it just means that we are awaiting His arrival. And so during Christmas, we spend time to make sure that we focus everything we do toward... um, getting ready to celebrate what it means that God became a man. God our Savior came here in flesh and dwelt among us. And we want to spend our time making sure that we teach toward that uh, goal so that everything that we teach is um, pointing us in that direction. We want to make sure that every scripture we, we read points us in that direction. We want to make sure that the songs we sing point us in that direction And it is our hope that when Christmas Day gets here, that you have already been in celebration all month long and that you are mentally better prepared to understand what Christmas really means to each and every one of us as Christians. And so that's what this season of Advent is about. I know that it's not a typical Baptist um, thing. It's not a typical season that we as Baptists take part in. But I do believe that it is a good season and I believe that it has very good, um, uh, very good purpose behind it, if you will. I've got some humming going on up here, sound guys. If y'all don't mind working on that. So this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read verse 12, but before y'all stand, i want to ask Mr. Mr. Ethan Peterson is going to come up this morning, and he is going to read our scripture for us, and as you know, each week we light a candle, um, and it has a different theme each week. This, this week we light this candle as we await the light of the world, and so that's what this scripture is about, and Ethan is going to light this candle for us this morning after he reads this scripture. So come on up, young man. You are young. Here's your microphone, right here, buddy. My microphone. That's yours. All right. Okay. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Oh, whenever I'm ready. Yep. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." John eight, twelve. Good job, buddy. Come on up. Light that candle for me. Ethan with the lighter. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a good thing, but we're going to try it. Look there, you did a good job, buddy. Good job. (laughs) Thank you, E. Thank you, buddy. (laughs) Ethan, you did fantastic, buddy. Thank you. Ethan's our buddy. We love him dearly. As I told you, the scripture we read and the teaching that we teach is going to be focused toward who Jesus is and what it meant that He came and was born in flesh of man. And one of the ways that we want to do that is by looking at the great I am statements. Now what I mean by that is if you were to study the Gospel of John, there are seven places to where Christ, as He is teaching and preaching, He makes a statement that says, I am this. Um, I think uh, one of them was, I am the bread of life. Another one was, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And what I hope to do is, there's several of them there, and I don't have enough weeks in Advent to go through all of them. So what I hope to do is just spend the next four weeks and just hand-picking out the ones that I believe will be best fitting for us to fulfill our goal in Advent of truly seeing who He is as the God-man. And so we're going to be investigating that this morning from John chapter 8. Verse 12, I want you to notice that his focus today, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, on our Wednesday night uh, Bible study classes, I spend a lot of time focusing on or helping our students focus on the fact that if you really want to find the truest meaning that God meant when He put these words in this text, one of the best ways to do that is, is to spend a little time finding out the context. And you know this is nothing new to you. If you've heard me speak, you know that I focus on this a lot. I don't believe there's going to be a text you're going to study that you're going to see that more true than this text this morning. You're going to see how important a role context plays in really understanding what Jesus was trying to get across. So in order to do that, I want to look at first off the location. So let's get in the context of the location that Jesus is actually speaking from right here. And you know what? We've not prayed this morning. Let's stop. Father, we want to come to You because, Lord, this is all about You. Father, we depend on You for everything. Right now, we're depending on You to speak to us. Lord, we have, we've lifted up our voices in praise to You this morning. But, but Father, now we come to You because... Um, Lord, we depend on you for everything. Father, right now, as we get ready to get into this word, it's spiritually discerned. Flesh and blood can't receive it. And so, Father, I'm asking you right now that you would help us to see what you want us to see. Father, no tricks, no gimmicks, just simply your word and what you have to say to us this morning. God, I have nothing to say that's more important than what you have already said. And so, Father, I just pray that you help me to be faithful to deliver your word the way that you meant for it to be delivered this morning. And God, I just I love you. I thank you. I thank you for this season that you've given us to celebrate that brings us back into remembrance that you became a man. Lord, the creator became his creation. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this season that you would help us feel the weight of that. That you would help us to understand it in a way that we can truly celebrate Christmas and what it means. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back to the location. If you're in the Gospel of John chapter 8, I want you to go down to verse 20. And I want you to see that we get an idea of exactly where he is when he makes this statement. So in verse 20, it says, These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. Go with me for just a minute and imagine with me that this is the temple. I want you to imagine a square that is about two and a half, football fields in size. It it, it stretches out almost as much as three football fields, but not quite, so 2.5 to 2.75 football fields in length and width. In this temple complex, you have a, if you were to imagine the the out-of-bounds lines here, let's say this line marks a wall that goes all the way around And what you have on the outside of this line, in the out-of-bounds area, you have the court of Gentiles. Now this is the place that the Gentiles are able to come and they're able to actually listen to the teachings and they're able to see what goes on in the temple, but they're not allowed any further than this point. There are actually um, inscriptions that they have found written in in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew that actually say anyone, any Gentile caught trespassing past this point is punishable by death. Some of you may remember if you've studied Acts that when the Apostle Paul brought the offering back to Jerusalem that the way they arrested him and actually ended up taking him to Rome was because they accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And that was not the case. It wasn't true, but that was their accusation. And they were going to kill him because of that accusation. And that's what started his journey to Rome, okay? And so Gentiles, the Gentile court was outside of this line here. Just inside of what they called the beautiful gate, the gate called beautiful. If you read Acts chapter 5, you'll read about that. This was the gate where beggars were laid to... um, Uh, where lame people were laid to beg for money. And so um, this is where um, Peter and John were going up to the temple for prayer and they come across the lame man and he said, Silver and gold have I none, yet what I have I give thee. In Jesus' name, rise up and walk. It was at the gate called Beautiful. And so inside of this gate that would have been about right here, they walk inside of the gate called Beautiful, the, the, uh, the oral Torah, the Mishnah, actually tells us that it took the strength of 20 men to open this gate. It was so magnificent. They walk inside of this gate, and when you get inside of this gate, you are now in what they call the women's court. Now, inside the women's court, you have four chambers. You have a chamber over here in this corner for the Nazarites, and basically, not to get into that lesson, but the Nazarites would take a vow and they wouldn't shave their heads until they completed their vow of dedication to God. Then they had to come to the temple to shave their heads and to give sacrifices and to burn their hair. This took place over in this little chamber of the women's court. Over here on this side, you had a chamber that held the wood for the altar, all the different types of wood that they used. Over here in this corner, um, no, I'm sorry, This corner, you had the oil and wine chamber over here. And in this corner, I can't remember exactly what that was, but you had four chambers, and then along inside of those chambers, you had these pillars and these columns, these colonnades, I guess you could call them. And inside of these colonnades, you had 13 treasury boxes. Do you remember the story where Jesus was sitting at the temple watching the people come and give? and these rich people were coming, they were giving these big amounts, and then this little poor widow woman comes in, and she gives two mites, and it's equal to one penny. All right. She comes in, and she's coming into the women's court. Everybody was welcome in this except Gentiles, but any Jew was welcome in this place. The reason it was called women was because this was as far as the women could go into the temple. The further you went into the temple, the holier it got. But inside of this women's court, it was the biggest court. It was 233 foot long. So um, basically somewhere a little bigger than a football field is what it was. And so this was a very long square court with these chambers. They had 13 temple boxes for treasury. And Jesus is standing in this place to where all of the Jews are coming in. All right. Now here's something to remember because this is where we get into big context. During this time of year, they are celebrating a feast. And I'm going to show you that here in just a minute as well. During this feast, they bring in these huge columns. They were 86 feet tall. And at the top of this column, there were four golden bowls. And each one of the bowls held seven and a half gallons of oil. And the Levites and the priests would all take their old liturgical clothes that they had for the previous year and they would take their clothes and they would put them in these bowls and they would use their clothes as wigs. And during this feast, they would light these four bowls, and there was four of these columns, each with four bowls on top, and they would light these columns during this feast. And we're going to get into a little bit more about that here in just a minute because the Mishnah or the Oral Torah that the Jews used, uh, it was all the the traditions and the teachings of the rabbis for the Jews Inside of this, uh, this oral torah, it actually says that during this time, the illumination from the temple was so massive that there was not a courtroom, a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that was not lit up by these torches. Now to put it in a little bit better context for you to understand, imagine a street light. I called Chris Pope and asked him, I said, how tall is a streetlight? He works for the phone company. I figured he would know. Well, a, phone, a street light is somewhere around 30 feet. Is that right? Somewhere around 30 feet. So basically, you take three streetlights and you stack them on top of each other. And then at the top of that, you have four giant bowls that are lit with oil. And if you've ever sat around a campfire and threw oil on a campfire, what happens to it? We used to sit there around, want to see how long we could sit there as it flamed up so big. So basically, it lit up Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem already sits on a hill, right? And so Jerusalem's already up on a hill. Now you've got these things 86 feet high with these four bowls, and there are 12 of them, and it lights all of Jerusalem. And this feast that we're talking about here, go with me to um, John chapter 7, just back up one chapter. John chapter 7, verse uh, 37 first. I want you to notice, this is where we're at in context. On the last day of the feast, the what? The great day, Jesus stood up and did what? Cried out. You know what it means to cry out? He's literally yelling to the top of His lungs. And I'm going to explain to you why. Because this was a great feast and not only was it the great feast, it was the greatest day of the feast. And we're going to explain a little, bit of that, a little bit of that in a minute as well. All right. But so Jesus stands up and He cries out on the greatest day of this feast. Now go with me to John chapter 7 verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of boots was at hand. And now here's the point that I'm trying to make. Here's the context that you can understand. Jesus has went up to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast called the Feast of Booths. Now just a little bit about this feast. This was a feast that was put in place for them to remember how God provided for them as they were in the wilderness, as they had come out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're in the wilderness, and they're trying to get to the promised land, but they're in a dry land. They're in a thirsty land. They're in a place that has no food provision for them. And so do you remember how God provided for them in this wilderness? He sent manna from where? He sent water from where? A rock. All right? And so God provided for them all the way through this thing and He led them through this wilderness how? How would they know which way to go? They followed a pillar of fire, right? A cloud of light by day and a pillar of fire by night. Keep this context in mind. What they're celebrating here is all of those things and everything they do in this feast is, feast is about that. The reason why they call it the Feast of Booths is because the people dwelt in booths while they were in the wilderness. They couldn't build permanent houses in the wilderness. Why? Because this wilderness was not their home. It was temporary. God made them dwell, dwell in booths. And so during this feast, the primary point was for them to remember how God led them through the wilderness, how God provided for them, how it was just a temporary place, how He fed them with manna from heaven, He quenched their thirst with water from the rock, and He led them all the way by a pillar of fire. And so here are two of the main ceremonies they did during the Feast of Booths. All right? Let me give you three of them. Of course, I gave you the first one. They dwelt in Booths. For seven days they were to come to Jerusalem. All Jewish men had to make the journey to Jerusalem. And they would bring their families, they were to bring their maid servants. they were to bring everybody in their house. And they were all to dwell in temporary booths. Basically, it's kind of like camping out. They took certain uh, limbs and, and uh, palm leaves that God told them to take and they built this three-sided booth. It would have one wall, one wall, and one wall in the back, open in the front, and basically just palm leaves covering the top. All right, y'all with me? They dwelt in these things for seven days. But then every morning, the next thing they would do is they would get up and the priests would all lead a procession from the temple down to the Pool of Siloam. Now in the Pool of Siloam, this is the main water supply in Jerusalem. Okay, It's fed by the Gihon Spring. The Jews called this living water. And they would go down with golden pitchers and the priests would take the golden pitchers and get from this pool living water. And they would march back up to the temple as they would sing hallelujah songs. I think it was the Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They sung all of these. They were songs of ascent as they ascended back to the temple. And when they got back to the temple, they would enter through the water gate and they would go into the court of priests. Now, the court of priests has passed the court of women, okay? So they would go into the court of priests and they would take this golden pitchers of water and they would pour it out on top of of the altar and it would flow off of this brazen altar onto the ground. The point was to remember that God provided water for them, how? Out Out of a rock, correct? God provided living water for them. Out of a rock. The Bible says it flowed out of the rock to the point that it was able to water them, their livestock. It just kept flowing. It didn't stop flowing. And then this rock, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it is, the Apostle Paul says, They all drank from that same spiritual rock, and that rock that followed them was Christ. That's what Paul says. And I thought that was interesting when I read it, that that rock that followed them was Christ. And I thought, what did he mean follow them? And I understood when I went back and studied the story. When you start in Exodus chapter 17, what you see is that's the beginning of their wilderness journey. They were thirsty. They were in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, and God caused water to come from the rock. But wouldn't you know when you get to Numbers chapter 20, right before they enter into the promised land, right before they go into Jericho to knock the walls down and take the promised land, guess what they do again? They're thirsty and there is no water. And there's a rock. And Moses goes over and he's supposed to speak to the rock, right? Y'all remember that? But instead, what does he do? He hits the rock. But even still, what comes from the rock? Water comes from the rock. No matter where they went in this wilderness, there was always living water provided. All right, Do you understand that? Now here's what's significant on the last day of the feast. I ain't losing y'all yet, am I? On the last day, the great day, the priest would lead the procession and they would go get the water. And they would come back and this time they would go through the water gate and they would go up to the altar. And instead of just pouring the water on the altar, they would march around the altar seven times. You remember anything significant about marching around walls seven times? This signified on the last day that they remembered that God led them into the promised land. God brought them in. He provided water for them the whole time, and He led them into the land flowing with milk and honey. Now go with me to John chapter chapter 7, verse 37 again, and let's read this part. This is not the focus of our message, but this is important for you to see. Now remember, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now think about this. The water ceremony is going on. They've came and they've probably marched around this thing seven times and now they are pouring the water on this thing to signify and to remember that... And I'm forgetting something. Not only do they do that, but during this time they actually sing Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. As they're marching around the altar, they're singing this. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. He is my strength, He is my song, and He has become my salvation. And listen to this part. With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. That's what they're singing. Now you and I may listen to that and go, okay, not real sure about that. But let's read this John 37 and you're going to see how they understood exactly what was going on. In verse 37 it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, And he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him what? Come to me and drink. They're remembering that God provided living water for them through the entire wilderness. That God quenched their thirst while they were in there. But they're also remembering in Isaiah that Isaiah prophesied that the true living water is going to come from the well of salvation from the Messiah that God's going to send. They recognize that all of that pointed toward the Messiah that is coming. And so when Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, they know exactly what he's saying, and he's yelling it at the top of his lungs. And keep reading. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This really is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but none of them laid hands on him. You know why they wanted to arrest him? Because they knew what he was claiming. Do you know what Jesus was claiming here when he said, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He's saying, I am the rock. I am the one that provides the water. He's standing up and he's saying to all of these Jews, probably over 6,000 in this women's court at this time, and he's standing in the treasury as they're all going about their business of this celebration, watching what the priests are doing in the priest's court. And Jesus stands up and says, Hey guys, I'm God, I'm the one. If anyone thirsts, I'm the well of salvation that you're singing about. If anyone thirsts, I'm the water that comes from the rock that follows you from the beginning of the wilderness to the end of the wilderness. If you were to go back another chapter in John chapter 6, you're going to notice Jesus says this that I'm going to preach about next week probably. He says, I am the bread of life. And you remember what the Jews said to him? They said, hey, what sign are you going to give us to prove that you are who you are? Because they understood what he was saying. They knew, they knew exactly what he's saying. And they said, what sign? They said, Moses gave us bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And Jesus said, no, Moses didn't give you manna from heaven. God gave you manna from heaven. I am the bread of life that comes and is sent down from heaven. And so when you get this context in here and you really begin to see what he's doing, you understand the point that he's trying to make. Now with that being said, let's flip over to John chapter 8 verse 12. And we're going to talk about the second festival that took place in the Feast of Booths. The first festival was a water drawing ceremony. The second festival that takes place at the Feast of Booths is the illumination of the temple or the Festival of Lights. And during this time, these great towers, 86 feet tall, were brought into the women's court, and I've already described it to you. Four bowls on top of each one of them, seven and a half gallons of oil in each one, and all of the Levites and all of the priests' old clothing used as wicks in these things And they lit these things at at evening time. After the water drawing ceremony was finished, the immediate thing they did, they lighting up the, the festival of lights. And as I told you before, the Jewish records say that when these things were lit, that there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that was not lit up from the light that comes from this thing. The Jewish rabbis actually understood that this was a a sign and a symbol that pointed toward God is going to send the same pillar of fire that He sent to lead them through the wilderness. God is going to send them a light of the world. In Isaiah chapter 9, they said, The people who have walked in great darkness have seen a what? A great light. They understood from the prophecies that God was going to send a light of the world, and when they light these um, these massive candelabras, when they light these things, Jesus, in the same manner, in the treasury where everyone is at, women and men alike, and where all, even the Gentiles outside, are able to see and hear, and he screams out with a loud voice, and it says here in chapter eight, verse twelve, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "I am." The light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the first thing I want to look at this morning is his message. What is the message that Jesus is trying to deliver when he says this to the Jews? Well, if you ain't figured it out by now, I don't know if I can teach you anything else. But I think I'm going to try to see if I can get this in your head. And here's the message notice what he says next. Whoever follows me will not what walk in darkness. So in other words, outside of Christ in this world and outside of us following Him, what else is there? Darkness. Here is the message that Jesus wants you to understand this morning and He needs these Jews to hear and understand. He wants you to know that this world is lost and full of darkness. Now I want you to think about something. Just like Israel was lost in the wilderness and wandering in a land that they had no idea where they were going, except a light leads them on their way. Whether it's a pillar of fire by night or a cloud of light by day, no matter what, the only way they know where they're going without being lost is they have to follow the light. And if they don't follow the light, guess what they do? They're lost and they wander forever and ever and ever. And they never find their way. They never find where they're going without the light. So let's figure out why this world is dark. We know the answer is sin, right? Let me give you a better understanding of that. In the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and full of what? Darkness. And the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And God said what? And there was what? Light. Here's what you need to understand. Before God moves in and before His presence moves in and before His Spirit comes in, there is no life. You remember when Jesus said, I am the water from the rock. If any man thirst, let him come to me and I'll quench his thirst. You remember that? What we need to understand here is this. He told us that He was talking about the Spirit coming inside of us and being that ever-flowing spring that comes from the rock. The Spirit of Christ. And so what we see in here is that He's helping us understand through here that this is the way being born again works. The Spirit of God comes in and says, Let there be light. And when there is a word spoken from God that says, Let there be light, what happens? There's light. And so Jesus is stepping on the scene here and He wants them to understand. That the problem with the world is we have separated ourselves from the source of life. There was nothing except life in the first of creation until man decided that he wanted to be God and rebelled against God. You remember that? And when he did, what was the result of the curse? Death. Death. Darkness. The world is cursed. And so all we have in this world today outside of Christ is darkness, is rebellion against God, is a, I want to be my own God. I want to make my own decisions. No, God, I will not surrender to you. And the more you separate yourself from God, there is nothing but darkness. And so Jesus comes back on the scene and He says to the world, I am The light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But notice what he says next. But will have the light of what? Life. Here's what you need to understand. What Jesus is saying is this. I am the light of the world. And what the light does is gives life. And the way that it gives life is it takes away darkness and it puts you back in relationship with the source of all life. And so Jesus steps in on the scene here as this ceremony is going on. And basically what these ceremonies, what these feasts were that the Jews partook in, they were just rehearsal dinners. They were rehearsals in two ways. They were rehearsal in the fact that they were doing things that remembered what God did for them when He delivered them as a nation out of Egypt. And then they were rehearsals in the fact that they pointed to what God was going to do with the Savior. And so all of this time, whenever they, they came to the temple to offer their sacrifices, all they were doing was a dress rehearsal. All they were doing was pointing to what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. Everything you read about the Old Testament, Jesus said, it was written about me. Whenever He was on the road to Emmaus and He was talking to the two disciples that had uh, witnessed the death of Christ and they were on their way back home and Jesus walks with them for a while but they don't know who He is. And the Bible says that Jesus opened the Scriptures up to them teaching them that from the books of Moses to the Psalms to the Proverbs, all of the Old Testament was about Him. It all spoke about Him. It all pointed about Him. No matter what you read in the Old Testament, it's about Him. And here He steps up and He lets everyone know, Hey... You've been doing all these dress rehearsals for so long. Can you imagine that? Uh, Let me try to put it in terms that, that we might understand. We're waiting on the trumpet to sound right now, right? We believe that. The Lord is coming back. And we get in here for dress rehearsal every week. And we're preparing. And we're worshiping. And we're waiting. Imagine that all of a sudden... The trumpet sounded. Now, we know this is not the way that it's going to go. But imagine the trumpet sounded, and then Jack Borkhart stands up in the back and he says, Hey, guys, (laughs) I'm here. What are most of us going to do? That's right. That's right. However, there may be some that actually believe. And this was the result of Jesus' statement too. Go with me to John chapter 8 verse 30 and look what it says. As He was saying these things, many did what? Many believed. They knew exactly what He was talking about. They knew exactly what Jesus meant when He said these things. And... They evaluated what He said, and then many of them said, That's it. Look at Him. I mean, who can deny it? We believe. And so, this is a beautiful thing to be able to see. But I want you to consider this. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, the Bible tells us that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has caused us to be transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His Son, His beloved Son. In uh, Romans chapter 1, if you were to read that chapter, you're going to see that it tells us that we are all anti-God. That literally, we have said we would rather have the created things than the Creator. So in other words, we withdraw from God. It's in our nature. Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it is, tells. no, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are born with this nature that comes from the womb saying, I don't want God. And that's the reason why this is a domain of darkness. And our only hope is that there is a light that can lead us out of this darkness and lead us out of this death and lead us into light and lead us into darkness life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4. The Bible tells us Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of almighty God. In other words, the way Satan keeps you in darkness is he tries to keep you blinded from seeing the light And the light is the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ who is the image of Almighty God. Jesus comes here to show us who God is. This is the reason why we get together and we study Him and we gaze at Him. This is why, guys, Sunday school is so important. This is the reason why Wednesday night Bible study is so important because if you are going to come out of this dark world, you do it by following the pillar of fire, the light of the world. And the way that He leads you is He displays to you the image of Almighty God. He shares the gospel with you and says, let there be light. He shows you your sin. He shows you your separation from God. And He draws you to be one with God again through Him. And then we learn from Him and we follow Him. And Jesus' message here, He says, Guys, if you follow Me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Now that's important because He didn't just say, If you just believe in Me. Now in other places He says that, believe in Me. But in his concept of believing means believing is a follow through. In other words, if I really believe something, I act on that belief, right? That's genuine faith. Suppose Noah had said, God, I believe you're going to flood the earth. I believe it with everything in me. I believe it. I just don't want to build an ark, don't really feel up to it. Did he really believe God's going to flood it? No, because if he wants to live and he wants to stay alive, what's he going to do? He's going to build the ark. He's going to follow what God said do. The evidence that his faith was genuine is the fact that he moved with godly fear and he built the ark. The evidence that you truly believe that Jesus is the light of the world is that you follow him. And you follow Him out of darkness and you are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And no matter where you go in the New Testament, this concept of light and darkness is everywhere. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 in the book of John. I don't care where you go. I can, name, I can sit here all morning and give you scripture after scripture. The point being, Jesus is saying to us this morning, if you're going to believe in me as the light of the world that's going to lead you through this wilderness, if you're going to believe in me as the water that comes from the rock that quenches your thirst and brings living water out of you, if you're going to actually believe that, you've got to come to me and you got to drink. And then you've got to come to me and you've got to follow me as the light. If the children of Israel walked through the wilderness and yet they had this pillar of fire that was going this way and they walked that way, what would have happened? They'd have never made it to the promised land, would they? My point is this. I'm not saying that you're saved by your works because we know that's not true. But I am saying that your works are going to be evidence of the fact that you believe. If you really believe that He's the light of the world, that He's the pillar of fire, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow it. And He says here very plainly, If you follow it, go with me again to John chapter 8 verse 12. If you follow it, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the first thing we saw was the message. That's the message. So we saw in the message there's a problem and there's a solution. And the solution we see here is, first off, believe the message. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the light of the world? Even a greater light than what the Jews were looking at that lit up the, old, the entire of Jerusalem. Jesus made sure they understand. You think this is living water? I'm living water. You think this is light? I'm the light and not of Jerusalem, of the world. So believe Him. Believe the message. And if you believe the message, follow Him. Follow through with it. Follow the light. John chapter 3, y'all turn there with me. John chapter 3, this will be the um, yes, the last scripture I'll read. You know this stems from him talking to Nicodemus and he said, "You must be if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, huh, am I going to get back in my mother's womb and come out again? Jesus said, no, you're thinking wrong. You're thinking physical terms. He said, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born physically first, yes, but then you've got to be born spiritually. In other words, out of you must come Rivers of living water. And so he says to him here, the spirit birth is like this. He said, the wind blows wherever it wishes. We don't tell the wind where to go, do we? The wind blows wherever it wishes. And when it comes through, we don't know where it comes from and we don't know where it goes. But what do we know? It's been there. And he said, so it is with those who are born of the spirit. Whenever you recognize your sin condition, that you follow a dark world, that you live in a world separated from God, that you're not following the light, when the Holy Spirit shows you that and He opens your eyes to that, the gospel message comes in and says, here's the way back. And the Bible calls that being born again. You don't know where it come from. I mean, why didn't it happen to some of you when you were in the teens? Why did it happen to some of you when you were 60, 70 years old? How come you spent your whole life following the world and all of a sudden here you are? What happened? Well, the Spirit blows where it wishes. (laughs) We don't tell it where to go. We We don't tell it, we don't know where it comes from. We don't tell it where it goes when it leaves us. But one thing we know for certain, it's been here. It's been here. You must be born again. And when you are born again, out of you flows rivers of living water. And you see the light. Remember that old song Hank Williams sung? Kirby used to sing it. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more. Being born again means the Spirit has come. Showed me my sin. I've heard the gospel and I've seen and I believe His message. And I'm going to follow Him. But notice what He said in chapter 3 verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You know why he says that? Because the first time Jesus came, he didn't come to judge and condemn, did he? He came to do what? Seek and save that which is lost. But when Jesus comes the second time, is he coming to seek and save that which is lost? He's coming for what? Judgment. To separate the sheep from the goats. But he says here, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. It may not be here yet, but you're already there. And keep reading with me. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And notice what he says in verse 19. And this is the judgment. Here's the judgment. The light has done what? The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because why? Why? My message to you this morning is that Christmas is all about the fact that we were in nothing but darkness. And God sent us a light. A great light. He sent us a light that we can follow all the way to the promised land. He sent us a light that will lead us in every path that we need to go in. But the problem is... People love darkness more than the light. And the judgment that will fall on each and every one of us is that we didn't understand Christmas. I am the light of the world. And if anyone will follow me, he will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of Of life. My prayer to you as we get ready to celebrate this season this morning is first and foremost that you have been born again. I don't care what you believe. Y'all tracking with me? I I don't care what you believe. Even the demons believe. And you know what they do? Tremble. Man, they believe a lot. Enough that it scares them. I'm not talking about this false narrative of come up here and recite a prayer and and, and believe and accept Jesus. Jesus don't need you to accept Him. What Jesus needs from you, or He don't need anything from you, but what Jesus offers you is living water that will cause you to be born again. And He says if anyone will believe the message, let him come and start drinking. And as you drink this water, Out of you will flow rivers of living water. And what Jesus offers you this morning is that He is the light of the world that God has been promising. And if you'll come and you'll follow Him, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. But the condemnation is this. Light has come into this world. And men love darkness rather than the light. This morning, if that describes you, I invite you today to be born again. I invite you to drink of the living water that He offers and to get on your knees and cry out to Him to forgive you for your sin and lead you in the path of righteousness. And there will be no better Christmas that you will ever celebrate than this Christmas, if that takes part in your heart and your life.